Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is just a quick announcement. There is something exciting coming up. Peter Hart's next book will be published by us, by Living History. Peter and I have come together and we're publishing a new book which will be out later in the year. And it's all about, drumroll please, the Gallipoli evacuation. That's right, how the Allies left Gallipoli at the end of the campaign. It's one of the most important chapters of the entire story, yet it's one of the most overlooked. But that's all about to change. No one has done as much work on this as Peter Hart has done for this book. And it's going to be really quite wonderful. So he's going to tell the whole story of the evacuation. The fears that they were going to lose 50% or 75% of the men trying to get off. That the Turks would break through and push the Allies into the sea as they were scrambling to get onto their boats. The politicians dithering about whether they should stay or whether they should leave. The diversionary attacks to draw attention away from the evacuations. And of course what the men were going through as they had to abandon their trenches, abandon their dead comrades and leave Gallipoli forever. It's going to be just such a wonderful, wonderful book. And Peter tells the full story of the evacuation, all those details I've just described. But of course, as a wonderful oral historian, Peter, over the years, spoke to many of the veterans who went through this themselves. And so the book is full of first-hand accounts. And really, the evacuation is told from the perspective of the men themselves. So it's going to be out in September 2020, but we are doing a pre-sale, which will start in about June and carry on for the next couple of months. And if you order the book during the pre-sale, you'll get a very special bonus from Peter Hart, which we will announce in the coming weeks. So look out for that, the book by Peter Hart, The Gallipoli Evacuation. It's really going to be something special. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast. Broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History, again coming to you from lockdown and I tell you what, talk about finding the silver lining in lockdown, I've been able to read lots of great books, do lots of great research and talk to lots of great historians, many more than I would otherwise have the opportunity to do if I was out and about. So I know everyone's struggling at the moment but you've got to look for those um, those small moments, those small silver linings and, and this is one speaking to a, a great historian, a bloke that just knows his stuff and is very enthusiastic about history, uh, it's James Holland. James, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thanks, Matt. Good to be on, and, uh, and and nice to be seeing you via Zoom. And I'm only sorry we were just talking about it, weren't we? You, you should have been over in the UK in June, and you should have been at our Chalk Valley History Festival. But you know, such is life. I can't tell you how much I was looking forward to being at Chalk Valley. So, um, you know, the, is is it the world's biggest history festival? I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's certainly the most eccentric. It's um, you know, it's a, it's a real mixture of of living history, kind of Spitfires and Lancasters flying overhead. Um, talks by amazing historians, 
you know, live music, all the stuff you'd expect from a kind of sort of English country festival in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Um, lots of tents, uh, lots of noise, um, lots of bangs, lots of musketry. It's great. It's really, it's really, really good fun. So it's gutting that it can't happen this year. But, you know, it's very, very small beer in the big scheme of things, I have to suppose. Well, absolutely, and but uh, certainly sign me up for uh, next year. Hopefully, next year when it's back up and running again, I'd uh, I'd love to be a part of it. It's uh, it's going to be well, great. But um, we we're going to talk today about something that I think you know you probably have almost gotten a little bit sick of talking about. But I think for our listeners, something that we haven't covered enough on living history, which is the Battle of Britain. And now, you know, it's well. This is the first question: Is the Battle of Britain old hat? Has everyone just talked it to death? There's nothing new to discover. Where do we sit on the Battle of Britain? Uh, well, first of all, uh, I don't think you can ever get bored of talking about 1940, Matt. So I'm, I'm very happy to be talking about this now. Um, uh, well, it's an interesting one. So, so much of about the Battle of Britain is, is sort of rooted in mythology. You know, the few, um, Spitfires and Hurricanes, as, you know, they always say that, you know, the, the Spitfires and Hurricanes were the last line of defense against Nazi Germany, the hordes and all the rest of it. And actually, they weren't. They were the first line of defence, not the last line of defence. Um, there was loads of other stuff, sort of, uh, you know, the world's largest navy, for example, <laughs> was sort of in between between that and a German invasion. Um, there was also, by August 1940, there was sort of, you know, two and a half million men in uniform. Now, they weren't all kind of, I don't know whether you get Dad's army over in um, over in Australia, but, but you know, they weren't all kind of septuagenarians and doddering and kind of amateur. You know, some of them were pretty good. Um, you know, particularly farmers who knew the lay of the land and all the rest of it. You know, you give them a rifle, they're, they're pretty handy. So um, there's just so much sort of myth about it. You know, and whenever you see it, you know, it's always sort of cerulean skies, sort of white fluffy clouds and white cliffs of Dover, a down Messerschmitt, you know, a vic of spitfires flying overhead. And I think we've just... And also we've, we've sort of come a bit mawkish about it as well, you know, about about how i mean rightly we venerate the veterans but but you know you've got to sort of put it in its right context and i think you know this this sort of david against goliath little britain against the sort of you know the mighty nazi moloch you know all that just needs kicking in the touch you know it really does i mean you know one one side was completely prepared for the battle of britain fought it on its own terms uh, and fought very well with superior aircraft production superior intelligence superior tactics um, uh, and the other side was pretty clueless, didn't know really what it was doing, had absolutely woeful intelligence, aircraft production that was just falling through the through the floor, um, and, and lost hands down. And the first one is Britain, and the second one is Germany. Talk to me about aircraft production, because I heard you in a recent interview giving some statistics about this, which just absolutely blew me away about... I mean, obviously, during the Second World War, the industrial capabilities of the combatants was always going to be key. But just just run us through some of those statistics again about about aircraft production because it paints such a clear picture of how dominant Britain was always going to be in that battle. Well, so so in the, in the run up to the Second World War, the Germany is is consistently producing more aircraft than anybody else um, because it's just getting prepared for it, and and Britain is a bit slow to catch up. And um, really interestingly, it's Neville Chamberlain when he's Chancellor of the Exchequer who resists the calls from the army. And says, no, what we need to prioritise is the Navy and the Air Force. And what we need to do is is, is use steel, not flesh, in any future conflict. I use mechanisation, global reach, industrialisation, mechanised uh, um, vehicles, aircraft, ships, whatever, to do the hard yards instead of kind of sending lots of young men to the cold face of war and having another slaughter like we had in 1914-18. So that is a clear British strategy. And he's quite right. And and then obviously when he takes over as Prime Minister in, in I think 1937 or whatever it is, um, you know, he sticks to his guns on this. You know, we must build up the Air Force. But even so, it's it's a bit late compared to 
Nazi Germany. Which is why in the first year of the war, Germany has more aircraft than Britain does. But by the beginning of 1940, a lot of the things that have been put in place, shadow factories, for example, so something like the like, like the Supermarine Spitfire, that's made by Supermarine. Now, although that's owned by Vickers Armstrong, which is a much bigger enterprise and a really massive armaments producer, um, Supermarine itself is really small. Uh, it operates out of kind of, you know, uh, um, hangars and sort of factory floor just uh, down on, on South, um, Southampton Water um, in, uh, in Southampton. And... What they have done in 1939 is start building these shadow factories. So, i.e., sort of training up staff and building the machine tools to enable you to build, to expand from a kind of small operation down in Southampton to a much bigger national production line. And that is starting to come into being by kind of May 1940. But the real impetus for it is the, the appointment of, um, uh, Max Beaverbrook, um, as, the first Minister of Aircraft Production. So the Ministry of Aircraft Production comes into being in, I think, the, the 14th of May, and he becomes the Minister on 17th of May, something like that, give or take a day or so. Um, and he's a classic kind of Churchillian technocrat. Churchill has taken over as Prime Minister on the 10th of May, same day that the Germans launched their attack in the, in, in the West, um, in France and the Low Countries. And Beaverbrook has no experience of aircraft production whatsoever, but what he has got huge experience of is running a workforce and running a workforce efficiently because he is um, part of the, the Beaverbrook media chain that kind of runs the, the um, Daily Express and various other newspapers. He's a, he's a you know he's a media magnet, and um, he goes in and immediately kicks butt. Uh, and all the kind of normal processes, you know, sort of writing a letter, sitting on a desk for a couple of days, writing a letter back, sitting on a desk for a couple of days, you know, the whole process of a letter exchange taking kind of a week to 10 days. What he does is just gets on the blower. He gets on the phone. And if there's any bottleneck, he sends someone down to go and sort it out. So all bottlenecks are kind of just changed out. You know, he has has signs up in his um, uh, um, in his office saying things like, you know, committees take the punch out of war. You know, he's an absolute doer you know he 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 has no kind of um care for his workers so they're all working sort of 24 7 365 you know he brings in all sorts of draconian laws you know everyone's just got to keep working he reduces the number of aircraft to five so three bombers two fighters you know no more so let's not get distracted from anything else what we've got to do is just produce loads of this type of fighter and and, and it is absolutely remarkable what he achieves in a very quick space of time backed up by a lot of the uh, um, things that have been put in place the year before which are now coming to fruition such as the shadow factories so for example in July um, so he takes over in the middle of May within six weeks um, you know he's improved uh, um, uh, aircraft production by about 68 percent and he's improved production of engines, and not noticeably the, the Rolls-Royce Merlin, by something like 168% or 182%. So it's some sort of gargantuanly high figure. Um, and in July 1940, we produced 496 single-engine fighter aircraft, whereas Germany is producing 240, which is less than 50%. And that is the best ratio that the Germans are able to achieve in the whole of 1940. So it is it is... A big change. And what you've got is this very interesting graph during the Battle of Britain where we, we, you know, by the 10th of July 1940, we've got something like about 640 aircraft available that morning. By October the 31st, we've got something like 780 single engine aircraft available. So i.e. the graph has just steadily gone up over the summer despite the losses. 
whereas German single-engine fighter has started at about 740 available on the 10th of July and has gone down to around 200 by the 31st of October. You know, which is just pitiful. I mean, you know, they're absolutely on their knees at Luftwaffe by then. And it's also, and it's also, Matt, sorry, one thing I should just say is it's also not just brand new aircraft, it's also repaired aircraft. So he completely overhauls the um, the civilian repair organisations, the CRO, and gives it different kind of classifications. So, uh, you know, an aircraft, when it's damaged, can it be damaged in 24 hours or 40, 36 hours or 48 hours on site at the airfield? Does it need to be taken away? If it is taken away, can it be put back in the air in a couple of weeks? Or is it? does it need to be kind of stripped down for spares? Uh, and all that process is done incredibly quickly. So all the spare parts, he he, he basically half inches from the um, air ministry and puts over to the Ministry of Air Pro- of Production, locks all the all the doors, you know, puts combination locks on them that no one else can know apart from people in the Ministry of Air Production, and just completely runs and controls the whole thing like a like a czar, you know. And it's just incredibly successful. And, and you know, 30% of casualties in the Battle of Britain on both sides are, are accidents. So being able to kind of repair crashes and, and battle damage and, and just accidents as well is an incredibly important part of it. And of course, the Germans, they're operating in northwest France, a long way from their supply base, which is back in Germany. So that works massively against them. And even if their aircraft production was higher, they still got to get them to the Pas de Calais or to Normandy or wherever the, the, the fighter aircraft are, um, uh, airfields are. And to be perfectly honest, really, it's about fighter production rather than bomber production at this stage that's key james the way you describe that it, it the thing about the battle of britain is it's always portrayed as a near run thing you know the british hanging on by the skin of their teeth they only just scraped through the germans were right on the cusp of an invasion the way you're describing it it doesn't sound like the germans ever had much of a look in with in the battle no, is that a fair assessment abs- totally fair assessment yeah i mean just not a chance not a chance uh, and I'll take this in two stages, if I may, Matt. So one of the reasons why there's this persistent myth is because by the third and fourth week of August, Dowding, who was the Commander-in-Chief of Fighter Command, and Keith Park, who is the Commander-in-Chief of 11 Group, which is the... Uh, so Britain is divided into into groups within Fighter Command, you know, so basically kind of geographical chunks of the of the country. And 11 Group is is London, the southeast of, of England. So that's obviously the bit that's that facing the, the, the worst of, of the German onslaught. And um, they think that they are now down in front, you know, Park's frontline squadrons by the end of August, beginning of September, are down to about 75% pilot pilot strength. Now, they think that is really dangerously low. One of the reasons they think it's dangerously low is because they think that German Staffeln, which is equivalent of a squadron, is based on the same principle as a British squadron, when in actual fact, it isn't. So in a British squadron, you would have 22 to 24 pilots to service 20 to 22 aircraft, and you would never have more than 12 in the air at any one time. So in other words, you've got a very, very tidy cushion of approximately 50%, but certainly kind of 40% cushion. Whereas a German Staffeln has a maximum capability, a maximum uh, um, number of 12 and very often is operational with 9 or 10. So their 75% strength is, you know, 8 or 9 pilots, whereas a British squadron's 75% strength is you know, 16 to 18. 
So you've still got a cushion for 12. And the big point is, is that, that Dowding at the end of the First World War went back and became a trainer of men. With, he was commanding of a, of a squadron in, um, in, in northern France before he did that. And he was very into kind of pilot care. He felt that pilot care was absolutely key to making sure that morale stayed high, that your efficiency stayed high and all the rest of it. So that's why he's introduced this cushion on, on, on squadrons. It's, it's, it's part of his kind of general day to day care. Whereas, of course, the Nazis don't give a toss about that kind of stuff. You know, they, they, that's just not part. You know, you're, you're a Nazi. You're part of a militaristic, you know, totalitarian state. So, of course, you don't worry about sort of pathetic things like having to have a good rest or anything. You know, so it's just, it's just not part of their thinking in the same way that it is the RAF. So, actual fact, compared to the Germans, they're actually doing OK. And one of the things that's really interesting is because aircraft production is so bad for the Germans, their fighter squadrons, by the beginning of September, they're having days where they've only got three aircraft or one aircraft or no aircraft or five aircraft. You know, in other words, they're really they're below 50 percent of their their strength. And that's when you consider their strength, their top strength is 12. So they're really below. And what that means is you're not if you're a squadron commander in, in the Luftwaffe, the Staffel commander, what you're not going to do is let some greenhorn off with your precious Messerschmitt, which means that what's happening is German fighter pilots are just flying more and more and more and more. And they're becoming absolutely mentally and physically shot. Whereas British pilots, the whole point is to try and sort of nurse them and, and, and make sure they've got enough rest and all the rest of it. On the 7th of May, uh, 7th of September 1940, which is a Saturday, which is when the Blitz starts, incidentally, what is really interesting is is that um, Park that morning has a meeting with Dowding and Sholto Douglas and, um, and various other bigwigs and says, I've got this idea about pilot shortage because one of the problems is this, again, there's this ongoing myth that, you know what, people were coming out of training and they, and they only had 10 hours. Well, first of all, no one was flying with 10 hours. Okay, you have about 150 to 170. But what they mean is they only had 10 hours on type, i.e. a Spitfire or Hurricane. The numbers of, of, of pilots that were coming out of their operational training units with that little amount of, of flying was tiny and the number of pilots who were then sent straight into the sky into combat with the germans you could literally count on one hand so again that's another myth that just absolutely needs to be kicked into touch because no squadron leader is going to send a new greenhorn with 10 hours on a hurricane or a spitfire into battle because they're going to do more harm than good it just makes no sense whatsoever so what part comes up with is this squadron classification so an a squadron is a squadron that has fully 100 percent experienced pilots a C squadron is one that has mostly greenhorns and maybe four or five experienced pilots. And a B squadron is one that's kind of sort of 50-50. And the idea is your A squadrons are in the front line, down in Kent in number 11 group, and your C squadrons are up in Drem in, in Edinburgh or, or Acklington in, in Northumberland or somewhere like that, where you're far away from the from the action and where, you know, perhaps a lone Junkers 88 from Stavangar in Norway might come over and you can sort of get a bit of real, uh, you know, real experience of combat flying against something that's quite a soft target. And in between, you can just build up your hours. And then when you're ready, then you can transfer to a, an A squadron, a, a category A squadron. And because everything within fighter command is completely standardised, all you've got to do is just fly from one airfield to another and you're in a new squadron. You know, there's no, you know, because everything everything's based the same. So there's no unfamiliarity or anything. So this is incredibly um, um, sensible. Um, the Germans, on the other hand, um, 
They're losing numbers. They're losing pilots. They haven't got enough spare parts. They can't repair their aircraft quick enough. Uh, and they're really looking down the barrel. And at the same time, they're making these plans for the invasion of Britain, which is Operation Sea Lion. And the whole thing is just completely cockeyed because Hitler never intends to do an invasion because he thinks that Britain is going to sue for peace. And this is because Hitler has absolutely no geopolitical understanding whatsoever. His, his worldview is incredibly myopic and he views his enemies as he does through his own mind. So in his mind, the most important thing is the army because he's a landlubber and he's a continentalist. So for him, Britain losing its army at, at Dunkirk must be enough to bring down a government or make them definitely sue for peace. Not realising, of course, that we've traditionally, Britain has had a very small army and the reason the, the Royal Navy is called the Senior Service is because it's a senior service, because that's the key to Britain's empire and global trade and successes over the previous, you know, 200 years. And so he just doesn't see it in that light. And then he's very sensibly got the Oberkommando de Wehrmacht, which is a combined services general staff, but he doesn't use it as that. He uses it as his mouthpiece. So what you get is in the beginning of July, after his triumphant return to Berlin and, you know, a quarter of a million people out there cheering and waving swastikas and all the rest of it, he then retreats to the Berghof in the mountains in Bavaria, which is incredibly unhelpful because it's quite difficult to get to. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's a bit like sort of Churchill sort of retreating to Scotland or something in, in, in kind of July 1940. I mean, just really, really unhelpful. And there he gets, he gets the, uh, the army to come along and, and he says right so what's your plan for invading britain and they go well my fiero we're thinking you know we'd attack on a really broad front from from lime regis to deal which is about kind of 90 miles and then he goes okay fine well you go off and plan that and then he says to the uh to the navy you know well what's your plan then and they go well my fiero you know we're thinking we should attack on a really narrow front of maybe kind of a couple of miles at deal and he goes well off you go then and then you know he says to going well what's your plan then and he goes well we're just going to smash the rf and it's going to be great uh, and, and, you know, there's just no joined up thinking whatsoever. They don't have any landing craft, you know, so they're having to fashion stuff. They've got a few Siebel ferries, which are quite cool. But, you know, they, they, they'll just sink the moment there's a kind of the faintest whiff of a swell in the channel. Now, what they're going to use is river barges from the Rhine. And they don't have enough which are motorised. So one motorised is going to be towing two unmotorised. I mean, could, I mean, can you imagine it? I mean, and then, and then they've got to actually land on the beach. I mean, it's just absolutely hopeless. Meanwhile, there are 16 squadrons in Bomber Command ready with chemical weapons to drop on any invasion fleet. And you've got the world's largest navy waiting for them, you know, all based around the southeast of England. And you've got um, you've got the um, uh, uh, Harry Tate's navy, which is this sort of auxiliary service made, based, um, uh, made up from sort of fishermen and trawlermen who, you know, stamped a kind of, you know, a, an Ehrlichan on the on the proud poop deck or something. Uh, and, you know, they're mine laying and mine sweeping and keeping a watch for the invasion. It has no chance. And if you then think, to kind of fast forward to 1944, and you think of all the jeopardy there is for D-Day and the Normandy invasion, with total control of the skies, with total control of the seas, with, with sort of unbelievable kind of sophisticated landing craft and, and all the rest of it, and there's still a massive doubt. Little old Nazi Germany, with its kind of sort of backward invasion plans, it just doesn't have a hope in hell. Sorry, that was an incredibly long-winded answer, wasn't it? No, I loved it, mate. I was—I I don't know if you could tell, but I was just hanging on every word. That's why we are on the show, mate. We, we love getting these perspectives. And that's what I want to talk <laughs> about now. We There is a perception. If we talk about perceptions of the Second World War, the perception that everyone has, 
I won't say everyone, but yep. lots of people have, is that Germany was militaristically ahead of everyone else. The, you know, they were the dominant fighters, and you know the the strategy and the way they conquered Western Europe and the unstoppable Nazis. Do we give them too much credit? A lot of this description sounds like they were ill prepared. They hadn't thought their plans out correctly. They didn't have the infrastructure and the resources to to put these plans into place. Do we give the Germans too much credit? Did they just get lucky in the early days of the war? How has it come to be that, given the reality of so many shortcomings, we see them as the dominant force during the Second World War? Um, sort of yes and no, um, because what what they what they do have is they have a spearhead of their army, which is is very well prepared for the operations for which it starts the war with, i.e. Poland, the Blitzkrieg years. I mean, though, in actual fact, I should qualify that with Poland because, because you know, as I'm sure you know, actually they started running out of ammunition and they weren't. It wasn't quite the kind of sort of well-oiled machine as as it should have been. I mean, if you look at the kind of opposition they've got in the kind of first couple of years of the war, I mean, what have you got? You've got Norway. Well, that just hasn't got hope in hell of defeating the the, the Germans. Uh, Denmark, not a hope in hell. Um, uh, Belgium and Holland because they just don't have sophisticated armed forces. So they've got armed forces, but they're just not sophisticated in the way that the Germans are. And there is this whole kind of sort of Prussian thing that's sort of hovering in the background that, you know, that's what they do and that, that we're a kind of martial militaristic nation. And the whole point about Nazi Germany is it's militaristic. So it's completely honed to that. Whereas the Netherlands, Norway, Denmark, uh, Belgium, they are not militaristic societies. They're democracies. You know, they're just, just not in that kind of mindset. And then... What they've also honed is, is the Luftwaffe, but the Luftwaffe has grown organically as what we would now call a tactical air force for, to offer close air support. It is not a strategic air force. So a strategic air force um, is one that is, op- I mean, you know all this, of course, Matt, um, um, is one that is operating on its own, on its own, regardless of anything else. So, you know, that is why a bomber force is, you know, the 8th Air Force or, or RF Bomber Command is a strategic air force because it's just going off and bombing cities. It's, it's got no involvement with the Navy, no involvement with the Army or anything like that. Occasionally it does, but basically it's operating on its own. So that's a strategic air force. A tactical air force is one which is 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 supporting operations on the ground. And that is how the Luftwaffe has organically grown to to enhance land operations. So that is what it's very good at doing in those early years. Sweeping in as a spearhead, shooting stuff up, Stukas bombing and stuff. And Stukas work when you've got air superiority, where you control the airspace. Then they can dive down, they dive down low. And because they're operating low, you don't need bomb sites and stuff because you're kind of virtually on top of the target. So that makes the target easier, which means you need less ordnance to achieve what you what you want, which is why a Stuka is a single engine plane, blah, blah, blah. Uh, um, and you don't therefore don't need big four engine heavy bombers and, and bomb sites and all the rest of it. So that's the thinking behind that. But obviously that only works when you've got control of, of, of the airspace. But in those early years, they do. Then you think, push forward a little bit and go into the Balkans, go into Greece. It's the same thing. You know, Yugoslavia, Greece, you know, these are countries which don't have a developed military in the same sense that Germany does. And Germany has some really fantastic weapons, you know, incredibly good machine guns like the MG34, um, uh, submachine guns, the MP38 at the time, um, you know, the 88mm dual-purpose anti-tank, anti, um, anti-aircraft gun, 75mm pack guns, you know, really high velocity. And it does have some tanks. You know, the tanks are pretty kind of feeble for the most part. 
That doesn't matter because it's the anti-tank gun, which is the is the, the key high-velocity weapon. And, and because they've got a very, very enhanced radio system, uh, um, they're all able to communicate with one another. The only odd one out in all this is France, which has a much larger army than Germany, has more double the number of artillery pieces, um, has double the number of tanks, has bigger tanks with bigger guns and all the rest of it. And on paper, just looking at the arsenal, should have won. The problem for France in 1940 is it doesn't have good comms. And and what the Germans have done in the 1930s and done brilliantly, because they're not terribly automotive, actually. Again, you know, everyone talks about the kind of Nazi war machine. It's actually a bit of a misnomer because, you know, the the, the 135 divisions that are used to invade the West, the Low Countries and France in, on 10th of May 1940, uh, only 16 of them are motorised. The other 119 are using what they've always used, you know, horses, cars and the two feet of the, of the soldiers. You know, so they're really, really under mechanised. It's a complete kind of myth, this idea of them being massively mechanised. And, and there's some really interesting statistics on all this. And there's in 1939, summer of 1939, there are, I think it's 105 Italians for every motorised vehicle in Italy. There are 47 Germans for every motorised vehicle in Germany. That figure is 14 in Britain, 8 in France and 3 in the USA. So France is by far and away the most automotive society in Western Europe. In Europe, full stop. And, and second only to the United States of America. Uh, and Britain, obviously, is pretty high as well. Um, but Britain has a very small army, but which is 100% mechanised. Um, but the Germans... So the Germans aren't this sort of great machine that, that, that they're kind of believed to be. But what they do have and what they have used very successfully as a propaganda tool in the early 1930s is the development of radios. So what they realised, what the Nazis realised, what Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda chief, realised, is that actually comms is the kind of key to getting across the Nazi message. You just effectively brainwash a whole country by just repeating the same old shit over and over and over and over and over again. And what they do is they develop a thing called the Deutsche Kleinenfänger, which is uh, the German little radio, which is nine inches by about four inches by four inches. A little kind of plastic baker-like kind of thing. And if you think about the 1930s, you know, most radio sets were kind of great big walnut things. They're absolutely huge. They kind of fit in your living room. They're incredibly expensive. And they're for the bourgeoisie and the you know middle and upper classes. They're not for the kind of lower classes. And what the Germans do is make radio acceptable for absolutely everybody. And they have the highest usage of radios per person, per family, anywhere in the world, including the United States by 1939. And, of course, what the good folk in the Wehrmacht think is, hang on a minute, we've got all these small radios. We can develop these for... Our, our military. So what you've got with a panzer division is not a division which are of 15,000 plus men, which is, is full of, of tanks. What you've got is a combined arms motorised formation of motorised uh, infantry, reconnaissance, artillery, and of course tanks as well. And they can all communicate with one another which is why they're able to move and exploit gaps and developments really, really quickly. The problem with the French is the French don't have very many radios. And in fact, the Chateau de Vincennes, which is the um, uh, the headquarters of the commander-in-chief of the German of the French Armed Forces, uh, which is uh, uh, General um, Maurice Gamelin, doesn't even have a telephone in the, in the Chateau de Vincennes. But they are completely dependent on telephone lines, which, of course, are being shot to pieces by... Uh, by stukas and by war damage and all the rest of it and so the flip side of that so if you if you can't communicate by telephone what do you do well you send out a dispatch rider but the roads are now clogged with refugees so what do you do you know you send off a, a off a and because they've got this incredibly top heavy command structure so they've got armed forces army groups armies corps divisions you know regiments uh brigades rather um battalions etc 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 
every single one of those. So say at the top of the chain, at the army group level, you want to move several divisions, you know, a core forward to meet a German threat. You've got to go from your army group to your army, to your corps, to your divisions, to your individual units. That's all got to happen very quickly. If it doesn't happen quickly, it ain't going to happen at all. And the problem they have is the message comes from army group, gets sent at six o'clock in the morning too, but the telephone's cut. So they then have to send a dispatch rider, but he doesn't, he hasn't come back by 12 uh, um, because he's fallen off or he's met, met a sort of, you know, log jam of refugees or whatever. So they send out another one at midday. He comes back by nine, by which time the whole situation's completely changed. And this is happening at every level of the, of the process. So this inability to communicate with each other, what that means is this much advanced um, uh, uh, French military simply can't move. Whereas the Germans just go, you know, and whiz around all over the place because they can all talk to each other. So it is. So the success in 1940 is 50% German brilliance and 50% French lack of comms and ineptitude. And, and that is why France can't. But everyone else, they're not particularly, you know, to a half-decent military outfit, you know, none of those that opposition should have been much of a much of an issue, and so it so it proves. So, are the Germans any good? Yes and no. You know, that's 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 the short of it. They're not on the pedestal that they've been put. They're still damn good, but it needs qualification. Given that situation, is there anything the Germans could have done? in the Battle of Britain to achieve what they set out to do? Or was it always going to be a failure? I think it was always going to be a failure because I, I just don't think they had the intelligence. You know, they, they didn't realise that we had the world's fir- first uh, fully coordinated air defence system. The reason why the Luftwaffe was able to maraud so freely over France is because France didn't have an air defence system, just didn't have one. You know, not in the way that we know, not not integrated with radar and observer corps and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And a sort of a, a single a single kind of processing point, which can then be filtered out. They just don't have that. So the Luftwaffe can maraud entirely on their terms. And the best way to destroy another air force is to destroy it on the ground. So what you want to do is 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 come over en masse, hammer an airfield, destroy all the air, all the, all the um, um, aircraft on the ground, go back, kind of attack another one. That That's the way to do it. Whereas because the British and the RAF and the, and the French Army of the Air don't know when the Germans are coming, all they've got to do is sort of just take off every day and kind of sort of fly around the sky and hope that they bump into the Luftwaffe. And, and then they have a uh, have a fight. And, you know, they do have lots of fights and they shoot down lots of Luftwaffe planes. But it's not enough. And, and suddenly the Luftwaffe in the Battle of Britain are coming up against an, an enemy that knows when they're coming. So knows to get off the ground when the Germans are coming towards them. And... You know, out of 138 airfields in Britain in 1940, only one of them was put out of action for more than 24 hours, and that's Manston. Only one. You know, I mean, the whole the whole object of the Battle of Britain, the whole strategy, the whole the, the whole aim of what the Luftwaffe is trying to do is destroy the RAF on the ground and knock out airfields, knock out, destroy air, air, aircraft on the ground, and they just don't achieve it. And one of the reasons they don't achieve it is because of the air defense system the other reason is because to actually destroy an airfield is when it's grass and it's about 100 acres in size actually requires a vast amount of ordnance uh, and Dornier 17s and Heinkel 111s which are their mainstay bombers are feeble compared to what's coming later on in the war I mean you know they could carry almost nothing like a couple of tons of bombs that's it I mean that is not a lot by later second world war standards you know Lancaster can carry 10 tons of bombs if it needs to you know 
that's a proper load. Uh, and obviously B29, <coughs> even more. So, you know, it, they just don't have enough, they don't have enough bombers. They don't have enough ordnance to do it. I mean, you know, the RAF destroy Hamburg in late July, early August 1943 with three and a half thousand heavy bombers. You know, the number of times that the Luftwaffe are flying over a hundred bombers at one time, you can literally count on one hand in the Battle of Britain. You know, that increases a little bit during the Blitz. But, I mean, you know, even take Battle of Britain Day, September the 15th, Sunday, September the 15th, 1940, day that's gone down as Battle of Britain Day. The biggest raid on that day peaks at around three o'clock in the afternoon, southeast London. And that is a hundred bombers, 200 escorts. Ranged against them are 335 Spitfires and Hurricanes. So obviously, if you are one of 12 in a squadron and you're attacking 300, you feel massively outnumbered. But if you're a historian and you're looking at this and you're standing back a little bit, you look at that and you go, 300 Luftwaffe aircraft being um, attacking 335 defenders. No chance, because everyone knows the rule of thumb is kind of three to one advantage, numerical advantage when you attack. And, you know, they're just not achieving that. You know, there's this kind of famous bit where Churchill goes down to the bunker at Uxbridge where Keith Park is, commander of 11 Group. And uh, because of the air ventilation system, he can't have his, his cigar lit. So he's got a, a sort of unlit cigar stuck in his jaw. And he goes, where are all the reserves? And Park turns to him and says, there are none. And it's always, when it's recounted, it's always recounted in this kind of sort of, you know, dun dun dun, kind of sort of, you know, big moment of, you know, the fate of the world rests on the shoulder of these 335 Spitfires and Hurricanes. But our interpretation of that is is entirely mythological. I mean, he might have gone, oh, there's none. But actually, there's no, but, you know, because I've decided to put them all up at once because I think that's the most effective use of them. But obviously, you know, 13 group and, and um, 12 group and 10 group, they've got loads left. So, you know, don't worry about it. Um, but, you know, you know, that's not how it's reported. So we always think of it as this kind of sort of life and death close run thing um, moment when an actual fact, it's not particularly because even with 335 in the air at one time, when he says there's no reserves, it means he hasn't got any more reserves in 11 group, but it's ignoring the other 400 spitfires and hurricanes and the rest of of fighter command because we've got about 750 by that point well it's a good point james how we remember the battle of britain and i i I thought of this this week because it's been anzac day here and i did a huge number of interviews and talking all about why anzac day is so important to australia and gallipoli and the fact that it was this defeat yet we still take so much out of it and you know at the end of the day the the best thing i could come up with was australia needs gallipoli we just, we just do. That's yeah. the, the way we see ourselves, the way we see our history. We just need Gallipoli. Is the Battle of Britain the same for the British? Yeah, I think it is. I think just the Second World War generally. I mean, you know, if you think about, you know, the, the British Empire, well, there were a lot of good things that came out of the British Empire. There's a lot of really bad things as well. And, and obviously, experience of the, of the British Empire was different. I mean, you know, if you're in Nigeria, you wouldn't say there was anything good about it at all. I mean, there's quite a few things good that came out of it if you're Indian, I suppose. You know, legal system, schools, railways, blah, 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 blah. Um, unification of a nation, um, et cetera, et cetera. But, but, you know, generally speaking, you know, empire's not great. Um, and a lot of the wars we've got involved with have been pretty grubby. 
um you know not not our finest hours all that kind of stuff the thing about the second world war is it's it's it, you know we can all it, it's got a sort of real moral crusade to it you know you know the, it was a good thing to be involved in that and i think the other thing about it is it's just the totality totality of the effort you know there wasn't a single man woman and child that was living in britain uh and indeed the dominions and, and all the rest of it uh, at the time that didn't have a direct part in the second world war and you know the world would have been immeasurably worse had imperial japan and nazi germany prevailed so you know it is a good thing and it is a reference point um you know and obviously it's it's been a massive reference point at the moment because of covid19 and you know we're facing this new war but a war against a disease and you know it's it's suddenly it's that that restrictions on on day-to-day life that sort of dramatic change in day-to-day life which you only kind of experience with something like a, a global pandemic or a war so it's, it's not surprising that we're kind of making all those comparisons, I suppose. But I, I don't know. I mean, I just, you know, I just think it's the role of the historians to try and try and try and sort of cl- clarify things and kind of move myth uh, um, away and, and create a reality, you know. And 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 it's just, you know, Hollywood has a big part in all this, of course, um, and, and just sort of general mythologizing. But it's very hard to kind of change people's minds on this stuff. I mean, you know, that I've got my view on the Battle of Britain and I'm sticking to it, you know. And, and I mean, we had a, there was a thing on Twitter this morning saying, you know, um, you know, what are what are the most important aircraft of the Second World War? And someone said, I can't believe no one's mentioned the Hurricane. Well, the Hurricane wasn't important at all. I mean, <laughs> it was only, you know, it, it wasn't a game changer. It was slow to climb. It was old fashioned. It was a kind of sort of, you know, it was basically a biplane that should have been converted into a monoplane and given a Rolls Royce Merlin engine. But it wasn't a great plane at all. It's just we had more of them than Spitfires in in 1940. And because they were so slow to climb, they were given the bombers, which were easier to shoot down than Messerschmitt 109s and 1010s. So obviously their total, A, there were more of them, and B, the targets they were hitting were easier. So they shot down more than Spitfires. But that's, you know, so what? I mean, you know, we needed that aircraft in 1940. Don't get me wrong. You know, it has its place. But the idea that it's one of the most decisive aircraft of the Second World War, when you're kind of thinking about kind of, I don't know, P-51D Mustangs and, and Corsairs and, and uh, you know, ME-262s and, and so on and so forth and mosquitoes, you know, not a chance. But it's all part of that kind of mythology, isn't it? So how, I mean, it's a tough question, but how should we remember the Battle of Britain, in your opinion? Well, I think we should remember it for for a really, really amazingly good effort. I mean, I do think it is important. I do think it was a it was a massive game changer in the in the war because you know the whole the, because Germany is sort of landlocked in in continental Europe for the most part. It has a bit of the Baltic Sea, but it's difficult to get in and out, and it's got a bit of the North Sea, but that's difficult to get out. It's basically it's a continental power. Um, because it's resource poor, because it doesn't have access to the world's oceans in the way that the other big players did, it was always going to be about fighting short, sharp wars. And this is what traditionally Prussia has always done. It's what um, uh, it's what Nazi Germany continues to do. It, it, it is let's hit very hard with massive swear punk, you know, point of impact, overwhelm the enemies very, very quickly and win very, very quickly. It's all about short sharp punchy wars because history has taught the german people that whenever it gets stuck into a long attritional war it loses because it doesn't have the access to resources what's really interesting about the battle of britain is it looks like germany's won just beforehand and battle of britain and britain's refusal to to um come to heel and sue for peace means that um 
that, that Germany is consigned to a long war. It means that the only way it's going to get the much-needed resources, particularly of oil and fuel, but a whole load of other stuff as well, is by going into the Soviet Union. Originally planned for 1943, 1944, but suddenly hustled forward to June 1941, when it is simply not ready for the scale of the operation that it is about to undertake. And so it comes to prove. You know, by November... Um, it's unravelling uh, by the beginning of December, by the middle of December, it is completely unravelled and it is simply not going to win the war. Uh, uh, and if you think about it, think about an arbitrary date like the 15th of June 1941. Nazi Germany has one enemy, it has Great Britain, albeit Britain with its dominions, including Australia. Um, fast forward six months, it's got three enemies. It's got Britain plus its dominions, United States of America and the USSR. Is it going to win? No, it it, it just the outcome is no longer, you know, the the end point is no longer in, in doubt. Germany will lose the war. What is in doubt, and obviously what is completely unknowable at this stage in, in the end of 1941, is how long it's going to go on for, what the post-war world will look like, all that kind of stuff. That's all very much to be kind of fought over. But the, but but Germany's ability to win the war has gone by the end of 1941, which I would say is kind of sort of you know, most people say it's Stalingrad, don't they? Which is early February, beginning of February 1943. I mean, much earlier than that. And that is a direct response to what happens in the Battle of Britain. So the Battle of Britain is really, really, really important. And one thing I think is really important is that strategic importance doesn't necessarily equate to boots on the ground. And I think there is this being, um, no one should belittle the kind of um, just unbelievable loss of life on the eastern front and no one should belittle the um titanic struggle that took place there or how much the grinding you know how much the the vermut was chewed up on the eastern front but you have to be very careful not to overemphasize um the eastern front compared to what's going on in the western front and all the rest of it and in terms of kind of material damage the west causes more damage to germany i think than than the eastern front does because you're just looking at that in terms of kind of manpower in terms of kind of breaking germany as as a as a military power in terms of its kind of you know breaking it economically the strategic air campaign the kind of the bigger picture the kind of the, the battle of the atlantic i mean the battle of the atlantic is the most important um theater in the second world war uh, because through the atlantic flows absolutely everything whether it's coming from australia whether it's come from the United States or, or whatever, you know that that is how you defeat Germany, is 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 through the Atlantic, and and the Germans don't get that. And what is interesting about the Battle of Britain is the number of of, of people directly involved in the actual fighting is obviously comparatively small and very small compared to what happens, you know, on the Eastern Front later on in a couple of years' time. But that doesn't mean that it should be diminished strategically. You know, it is it is an absolutely key turning point. And it's probably a bigger turning point than Hitler realises at the time. It's been just wonderful, mate. Before we finish up, um, I know you're working on a Sicily book. Or have you finished the Sicily book now? What are you up to with that? Yeah, Tell no, me all about that. No, yep, yep, yep. Sicily's done. Uh, I'm literally just sort of, you know, doing appendices and that kind of stuff at the moment. So, yeah, no, that that's that's pretty much put to bed thank goodness and um yeah what a fascinating a fascinating project that's been because you know it's just been hardly anything lit, written about it i mean the last major account of, of of the sicilian campaign was um at its own right was um was probably um carlo d'este uh, and his book um uh, which is called bitter victory um which came out in 1988 you know so it's kind of over 30 years ago it's a hell of a long time ago really so it's been fascinating to do it and um it probably won't surprise you to <laughs> 
<laughs> I have a slightly different take from him. I kind of think think of him as a bit of a declinist. You know, he's kind of pretty down on the Allied war effort. Okay, so the big thing about that, I'll just tell you this very quickly. Um, it's really interesting. It's like, so the big downer on the Sicilian campaign is that uh, so many Germans got away. Okay, but again, all this stuff, kind of stuff. So it's something like thirty nine and a half thousand Germans got away in total from 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 Sicily, which you know I'm sort of thinking. Yeah, compared to the kind of 43,000 British soldiers that got away from Greece, that doesn't sound like a huge amount to me. Uh, and, and, and of those, only 25,000 are frontline troops which go away from, which, which get away from the actual evacuation operation, which is called Operation Lair Gang in the kind of, you know, from the 11th to the, to the 16th of August, 1943. Which is less than two divisions. I mean, you know, so it's not, it's not that much. And I don't know why the kind of, you know, allied historians, uh, you know, Anglophone historians are sort of beating themselves up about this. Because, I mean, that's going to make absolutely no difference to the subsequent Italian campaign at all. It's just not enough to kind of make that kind of difference. Particularly when you compare, when you consider how many um, German divisions are being poured into Italy, ready for an an allied invasion. So it's just, it's just not the big game changer at all. and the second thing about it is, if you look at evacuations in the Second World War, nearly all of them are successful. You know, starting with Dunkirk and ending with Operation Hannibal, which is the evacuation of over two million Germans in kind of basically ships that don't work um, from East Prussia, you know, Königsberg and all around there and, and kind of the Danzig Corridor and all that kind of stuff. You know, two million Germans right at the end of the war with the kind of, you know, the Red Army breathing down. They still managed to get two million out, you know, so... It kind of proves that, that most evacuations are incredibly successful. So I just, you know, I, I think, you know, you, you wander around, I don't know if you've ever been to Sicily, Matt, but if you ever go there, I, have, I mean, you I, look at that. I've been there, okay. right. Uh, yeah, it's, isn't it? And, and you look at that, and you just think, 38 days to capture this place, bloody good effort. Well, it's great. Is the book out now? When's the book going to be out? I mean, I suppose COVID uh, is getting in the way. Yeah, no, no, September 8th. Yeah, assuming okay, that people right. are able to buy books again then. Well, we'll look out for that one and a great uh, topic for the next podcast, mate. But uh, as always, James, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. And just thank you for giving us our time because uh, I just love the new insights and the, you know, we've always got to ask new questions and I I don't think enough of us do that. So it's always uh, fantastic to have you on the show to talk about these things. Great. Well, thanks for having me on, Matt. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.